Deontolog Forum, and uh, it's August the 10th, year 2006. We have an Ontolog scheduled discussion session today, and the topic is Ontologies and Service-Oriented Architecture. Uh, this, session, up a little, this session has been co-organized and moderated by Dwayne Nichol and Rex Brooks. So, there you go, Dwayne and Rex, all yours. Okay, uh, if we could have people on the phone, um, please introduce yourselves one at a time. Don't be shy. Step up and do it quickly, please. <coughs> um, let's, uh, Rex, let's just go down the list and do it, starting with you. Okay, I'm Rex Brooks. I'm associated with Oasis, several technical committees, and I'm the co-moderator of this group. I'm Dwayne Nichols, Senior Technical Evangelist for Adobe Systems. Uh, the list, you'll have to go to the uh, Ontology uh, Wiki page and uh, refresh your browser and then just leave it and we'll, we'll all go from the current state and just go down it. So that would be Peter, Kevin, Jim, Rebecca, Salwa, etc. next. So, uh, Peter? Peter Yim. Uh, I'm one of the co-conveners of the Ontolog Forum. Welcome. Kevin Cable. Hi, my name is Kevin Cabral. I'm with the Department of Energy. I'm one of the Enterprise Architects. Jim Shoning. Jim Shoning, uh, U.S. Army, working on the future business system, which will be a service-oriented architecture. Uh, Rebecca Metz, please. Uh, I'm Rebecca Metz. I'm an associate with uh, Booz Allen Hamilton. I participate with a lot of these folks in the OASIS, uh, so a reference model TC, and uh, basically do a lot of projects with various uh, uh, agencies in the government regarding service-oriented architecture. Thank you. Salwa uh, Abdul-Roof. Yes, I'm Salma Abdurraouf. I work for my corporation, and I'm an enterprise architect supporting the airport headquarters and direct the work. Uh, Doug Wall, please. Uh, Doug Wall, Booz Allen Hamilton, uh, data architect uh, supporting uh, primarily the intelligence community. Uh, Doug Clark, please. Clark uh, with... I think we lost you, Doug. Uh, Doug Clark, hear me now? Yes. Thank you. Simulation office, uh, working in a little different area, ontology of physics, and looking at issues associated with ontologies for model design. Thank you. Frank McCabe, please. Oh, Frank McCabe, uh, I'm the chair of the OASIS reference architecture Thank you. Ken Lasky. Ken Lasky, Minor Corporation. I'm in the Information Semantics group there. Um, I'm one of the uh, editors of the SOA reference model and working on reference architecture. Thank you. Kurt Conrad? Uh, yes, I'm an independent consultant in the Bay Area. Thank you. Ron Schmelzer, please. Yes, hi. This is Ron Schmelzer. I'm Senior Analyst with Zapthink, and uh, we produce research advisory and expertise on service orientation. So I encourage you to check out some of the stuff that we produce. Thank you. Now, that's all the people that I have expecting. Peter, do you want me to go down and call the list of expecting? There's about 35, 30 people on the list. I don't know if we have time to do that today or... Yeah, uh, I, I guess easier. It's easier. Otherwise, nobody knows when to start. Okay, so I'll go down the list. Neil Onaloff, please. Uh, Dwayne, this is Dave Ellis, uh, information architect working on integrated public uh, alert and warning systems. Thank you. Uh, David Prompovich. 
Eliza Schievenbein. Schievenbein, sorry. Antoinette Arsic. Hi, Antoinette Arsic uh, with the MITRE Corporation. Um, sort of jack of all trades, <laughs> working with anything um, having to do with metadata, taxonomies, ontologies, uh, and information architecture. Thank you, Antoinette. David Martin, please. Okay, Scott Fairholm, please. Joanne Carey, please. John Soa, please. David Martin. Uh, Bob Smith, please. Hi, David Martin here. Hi, David. Can you please give us a brief introduction of yourself? Oh, sure. Uh, I'm a uh, researcher at uh, SRI International in uh, California, and uh, I've done a fair amount of research on, on what's called the Semantic Web Services. Thank uh, you very much. Terrific. Uh, Charles Turnitzia. E. Michael Maximilian. Hi, uh, this is uh, Michael Maximilian Omax from uh, IBM Almaden Services Research. Thank you. Jim Irwin, please. This is Jim Irwin. I'm from Revolutics Incorporated. Um, I'm an application architecture and developer. Thank you. Brian Neiman, please. Present uh, with ETA and involved with the SOA community practice. Thank you, Brad. Uh, Gary Baird Cross, please. <laughs> It's Hack Roth, please. Uh, yeah, it's Hack Roth, uh, information architect, uh, previously with Unicorn, now with IBM doing semantic information integration, and now general data management. Thank you. Hey. Sukumar Warkanis. Attila Elki. I'm apologizing for mispronouncing some of these. Adel Kilikal. Roy Wilbuck. Nabonita Guha. Jim Disbro. Now I have a host of Booz Allen folks here. I'll go through the list. Uh, Conrad Fernandez. Pierre Gonzalez. Doug Wall. Yes, Doug Walls here. Thank you. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and introduce yourself, please? Uh, yes, I'm a data architect primarily with the intelligence community working on a white paper to articulate how when you move to a service-oriented architecture, it affects your data architecture. Oh, that sounds interesting. Thanks. Uh, Michael Becker. Sri Gopalan. Atif Karaishi. Paul Cook. Uh, this is Paul Cook uh, with EPA. Uh, I'm working on enhancements to a knowledge base of environmental models. Thank you. Bob Marcus. Steve Andrews. Steve Andrews, the News Corporation, uh, do GIS and service-oriented architecture, particularly in the GIS field. Thank you. Now, I'd like to ask anyone whose name was not called who uh, is on the line, uh, whose name, last name starts between A and G to introduce themselves. This is Owen Amber. I'm the co-chair of the XML Community Practice at XML.gov. Hey, Owen. Hi. Good to have you. Hi, Owen. Hi, Owen. 
This is Scott Fairholm. I came on a little bit late. Thank you. And can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, I'm with the National Center for State Courts, and I'm the uh, chairman of the Services Subcommittee for Global Infrastructure Standards Working Group. Thank you. Anyone else between A and G with their last name? Uh, yeah, this is Len Toskins. I lead the architecture profession for HP Services. Thank you. Could you spell your, your, your name again? Could you spell your name, please? Yeah, it's F-E-H-S-K-E-N-S. Thank you. Anyone Leonard, Leonard. Yes. Anyone else between A and G? Yes, this is Deborah Kell from the Department of State, um, focusing on enterprise um, on the data architecture. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Could you spell your last name for me, please? Yes, C O W E L L. Thank you. And did you say Department of State? Department of State, right? Enterprise Architecture Office. Thank you. Anyone else from A to G? Yes, yes. Nicola Gluchajic. Consultant interested in architecture and implementation that took French organization. Thank you, and I think I heard somebody else. Uh, yes, Jim Jonas. Thank you. Okay, could you spell your last name, Jim? Uh, J E N N I S. I'm a Chief Technology Officer, United States Coast Guard Operations System Center, and uh, also Principal Architect here. Okay, now we'll expand it between A and M. Anyone whose last name begins with A and M who hasn't introduced themselves, can you please speak up? Uh, Bill Miller, who's Alan Hamilton, Information Architect, working with the Intel community. Thank you. Henning Hoyer, Africon Incorporated. Uh, that's Jonathan Johnson. Uh, I'm Enterprise Architecture. Thank you. Could, could you just, uh, give me your name again, please? Henning Hoyer. His first name is Henning, H-E-N-N-I-N-G, okay. and last name is H-O-Y-E-R. Thank you. Anyone else between A and M? Yes, two of us here, Jessica DiSteno and Michael Mansell at the Software Engineering Center at Fort Monmouth. Thank you. Yep. Anyone else between A and M? Uh, Jessica, could you spell your last name for me, please? Sure, D-E-S-T-E-N-O. Yes, and your pal. Okay, let's open it up to the, the rest of the alphabet now. Anyone whose name is not being called on introduce themselves? Uh, David Prompovich, Department of Transportation, uh, Enterprise Architect, spelling of my last name is yeah, I got your name. Got okay. I'm only asking when, uh, for those who did not send in an RSVP. Great, thank you. Okay. Thank you, David. Anyone else? Okay, it looks like we've got the introductions from everybody. Um, Brooks, would you like to uh, to uh, introduce all to the session? Sure. Uh, due to some time constraints, we want to have uh, Ron Schmelzer uh, go ahead and give his briefing now. And um, if you'll call out uh, the changes between your slides, please. Sure. Sounds good. Do you need me to dial into the VMC as well? Uh, as no, you don't need to do that. Okay. You can if you want. Well, great. So I'm gonna, I guess I'm uh, kicking it off and starting it up now. Yes. Okay, great. Well, thank you all for joining. It sounds like quite a crew. Actually, some of you are sound like you've spent quite a bit of time on data and ontologies and taxonomies and. Semantic integration, and, <clears throat> and uh, you know, I'm going to basically about you guys as the experts on uh, those uh, 
situations, what I'm going to provide for you is a little bit of some things to think about in the context of service orientation. <clears throat> Maybe some of the things you've already thought about and factored in into your plans or uh, to some of the best practices in your organization or the standards you're trying to promulgate in the industry. Sorry, Ron, uh, can, I, Ron can I interrupt you just for a second? For those of you sure. who don't have Ron's slides, they're linked from the uh, Ontolog uh, forum uh, page. Uh, you just have to click on the word slides and you'll get his slides. Thanks, sir. Ron, go ahead. Okay, great. So um, I'm going to go to my second slide, which is basically my first slide of content. And basically you'll see here is uh, a lot of the ideas of service orientation is to give us a little bit of the light at the end of the tunnel. It's uh, a bit of a tongue-in-the-cheek uh, joke here because the light at the end of the tunnel, this picture is a train approaching. So that's clearly not the kind of light you'd want to be uh, seeing at the end of the tunnel, especially if you're standing in the train on the train tracks. The kind that we're talking about here is that we're trying to solve issues that have to deal with change. Um, as you know, service orientation is primarily an approach for dealing with issues of agility, heterogeneity, flexibility, and of course, deal with the long-lived challenge of integration that happen when things, systems aren't the same and when systems continuously change. So what we're trying to accomplish by doing this is abstracting these capabilities in the organization as services and representing them in an abstract way, leveraging mostly metadata as a means to represent the capabilities of systems, also represent policy, represent process, represent all the things that allow for systems to be so dissimilar over time. And therefore, what we're trying to achieve is we're trying to achieve reuse. And you've probably all realized that you cannot have reuse without having legacy. Because uh, if you don't have legacy, that means you're not getting reuse, you're rebuilding. So that's sort of a challenge in an environment where we actually want to keep things around for a while. So how do we uh, build these new uh, mechanisms for uh, solving our issues of change without having to rebuild things that are clearly haven't been built to deal with change? So obviously one of those things is metadata is the key. Let's move to slide three. One of the challenges of service-oriented architecture is that I have a picture here of somebody in the uh, North America calling somebody in China and We've reached the point in our telecommunication system where I can use any phone or mobile device or voice over IP system and I can dial and call somebody in China. But that doesn't mean I can actually speak to them because I don't speak their language, right? This is one of the illustrations of semantic uh, differences. And one of the biggest issues we have in systems is that just because you can compose services from multiple systems together doesn't mean that you actually can achieve real composition because it may be that the two services that you are composing together have very dissimilar data types, data schema, semantic meaning, metadata representations, you know, server interfaces, all that sort of causes impedance in actually trying to achieve composition. So it, from our perspective, which may or may not be the same as yours, but our perspective is, is that the semantic challenge is primarily prevents real composition from happening in a service-oriented architecture. And so we need to think about what are those different semantic problems that prevent multiple services from composing and how do we address those. So let's go to slide four. And by the way, in that previous slide, that last bullet is sometimes we try to approach those issues of semantic incongruity with approaches like mapping or data transformation. And those uh, work in sort of the general integration environment when you're thinking about integration from a point-to-point -point basis, integrating from system A to system B. But you can't really do that in an environment where you're building loosely coupled services.
services that you can compose from any number of, of processes or compose into any number of composite applications. If you don't know how the service will be consumed, it's very difficult to create arbitrary mappings. So we have to kind of move to a different way of thinking about that. Well, on this slide, slide four, you'll see what we represented integration as a bit of a zipper. It's not quite a stack, and some of you may have seen this picture before. It's actually quite an old picture. We first produced it in 2002. But it seems that every time we solve one level of integration problem, another integration problem rears its head. But first, we have the issue of trying to integrate different systems on the network. And then we have the uh, issue of trying to resolve different sources of information, uh, trying to identify those sources. Now we seem to be at this level where we're trying to resolve integration between multiple disparate interfaces to application logic, and maybe trying to interface multiple different business processes in the organization. But we're still left with integration problem of semantics. You know, we haven't really, um, you know, we haven't really uh, you know, addressed all of integration through service orientation. We're just sort of notching our way up this zipper. And I want to sort of explore some of these areas of taxonomic uh, and uh, semantic problems that we face in a service orientation. So let's move to slide five. What's in a service contract? Well, as you may know, or maybe you don't, uh, the core thing that we refer to in a service-oriented architecture is obviously the service. And the service is described not by its implementation, but by its contract, by its basically its interface. Um, the reason why we don't describe a service by its implementation is we're trying to move away from tightly coupled point-to-point -point integration and toward loosely coupled heterogeneous composition. So there are a lot of things that we need in a service contract to help us identify the relationship between a service provider on the one hand and a service consumer on the other. At first, we have functional requirements. That is, how do I know what the service will do? How will it provide? <coughs> Basically, it's the list of operations, the infrastructural requirements of how we bind to the service or how we can bind to the service, and then locational considerations as to where the service is and how I can locate or, or how I can locate it. But we also have a whole series of non-functional requirements that govern services as well. Just knowing where a service is and the output of a service does not tell me if I can bind to it, because it might be that it has a certain security requirement, such as I must be validated against the system I trust, and there must be a digital token. Or there might be a quality of service requirement. I can guarantee the service will be up from 8 o'clock to 5 o'clock during working hours, but not after then. Or maybe some service level requirement. I can only guarantee a certain number of transactions that you can pass through the system at once. After that, I will throttle your uh, performance. There may be transactional requirements. In order to execute this service, you must first have successfully executed some other service or business process. There may be some commercial rules attached to a service. You have to pay to use this service. Or maybe you can only use this service if you have, are a partner that's listed in a, in a directory. Um, and of course, there are issues of semantics. Now, here we're not talking necessarily about the semantic requirements of the information that is passed through the service. That's clearly a big issue. What, how do I know when I'm calling a service? What information will come out of it? And will I be able even to understand it? In the service contract, we can at least describe the kinds of information that will come out of a service. So we could say, this service will output data that complies with the following schema, interpreted in the following ways, using the following guidelines. And it's up to the service consumer to figure out if they can understand that. And of course, finally, we have process considerations uh, when 
services. That is, in what, how do various services compose together to meet the uh, service requirements? I want to actually show you in the next slide, in slide six, what, how one company. This is actually AB and Amro, um, a very large bank uh, that has actually pulled together a pretty co comprehensive service-oriented architecture consisting of a number of services, and they've actually represented these services with these uh, circles inside of these things that look like folders. And what makes this unique is that these services are not tied to any particular infrastructure. For example, I might show a service here called payment transactions in the core transactions grouping. By the way, these are called service domains, for those of you that want to dig deeper into it. In that core transaction service domain, there's a set of payment transactions that can be consumed by any of the uh, channels, in their case, the ATM, the branch, the website, or the call center, and consume those payment transactions. The reason why I'm showing this is that companies are, and organizations are trying to move to this model of shared services. But what these shared service model does is it raises these issues of semantic problems, especially along the service contract, and service uh, semantics as it, uh, as it uh, is applied to the underlying data. So uh, you know, what I've done in this set of presentations is I haven't really addressed, well, how do we go about solving some of these issues? But hopefully what I've done in these 10 minutes, which is very short, is show some of the additional levels of problem that service orientation introduces um, on the topic of semantics. And I think I have a few uh, minutes now on this last slide here to uh, get a little specific with you based on your questions. If I'd leave it open. <coughs> Can I ask and Yes. Uh, this is Rex. And uh, it, it occurs to me, if you could leave that, that last slide up, uh, Peter, that uh, within each of those service domains, if, this, if, for instance, core transactions was itself a published ontology or a published taxonomy, probably using the ontology uh, web language, OWL, uh, that that would be one way for them to guarantee that their particular semantics could be followed. Yeah, you could think you could think of semantics following the same domain model as the service contracts themselves. I mean, certainly, you know, if you're trying to compose core transactions together, they should at least share some sort of common understanding of what the transaction is and the basic elements. We like the service domain way of of organizing services. I think it really addresses a lot more problems than than organizing your services based on which system happens to be providing the service capability. I think that's sort of an old way of thinking, but. If you're, if you're suggesting having a, an ontology with grouping such as like core transactions in this case uh, by domain, I think that's a pretty good way of thinking. Uh, Ron, this is Dwayne. I'm really impressed with what I saw today in 10 minutes. That's, that's excellent. Okay. And, and the, the two things that really stand out are, are again, your leadership and the, uh, the category of uh, taxonomies for classifying services. The other thing that I really wanted to recognize, too, that you've once again uh, um, talked about is the fact that the, the XML is not tied to the semantics. So just getting the information in the first XML has nothing to do with semantics, and that's something that if you're still plaguing a lot of the web services groups uh, who still, you know, they see the name invoice on a schema for an element, and they think they know what that means and assume that everyone else in the world will mean that, uh, know sure. what that means. I'd like to ask you, what do you see as promising technologies for sharing semantics on the data level in the future? Um, do you uh, view things like register repository coupled with uh, some methodology for declaring taxonomic structures as a candidate? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly we've seen, uh, you know, obviously somebody mentioned OWL and, and OWLS, as well as actually there's this, um, somebody put together this uh, OWL uh, WSDL combination, I think it was actually MITRE, I think, or I don't remember, when you, when you guys did that. And it was really um, uh, very, very intriguing. I think those things can help understand sort of the relationships between various different um, semantic uh, ideas and relations to each other, as well as things like we've heard some people talk about UDEF, which is the Universal uh, Data Element yeah. Framework. Yeah, and that's you know a way of identifying ideas based in a, in, on an actual encoding. You know, sort of like the way the medical industry does it. Um, I think you know those things are very promising. You know, as, as well as RDF and some of the stuff people are doing around that. Um, but uh, I think you know from a from a from a an architectural approach. You know, obviously the registry serves as a common um, place for the exchange of this information. But but it can't really be XML-centric, necessarily. Uh, here's a good case in point. We were working with somebody who's deploying services to um, mobile devices, you know, like uh, PDAs and phones and whatnot, and they're not even pushing XML to the device because it's just simply too heavy. I mean, from a bandwidth perspective as well as from a processing perspective. But they want all the benefits of service orientation regardless. Like they want service orientation, but without the weight of XML. So we say, well, yeah, I mean, nothing about service orientation requires XML. Um, however, if you can, XML, there are some benefits to it. So I think thinking about uh, how you would deploy semantics in instances where you have restricted bandwidth and processing to refining you know, how the semantic model would work. Thank you. Um, does anyone uh, wish to ask Ron another question? Uh, Ron, it's Peter Yim. Uh, Hi there, Peter. Hi. Uh, one question. Uh, how do you see, like, expressivity of, uh, let's say, ontology language come into the picture, maybe based on the, the work that you have done so far? Well, you know, I think part of it is is that we're, we're heavily dependent on someone within the organization to represent, uh, you know, these semant semantic information and model in a way that exchangeable, it's manageable, um, you know, has the le has the most as much accuracy as possible. And the question is, you know, expressivity really has to deal with who that person is going to be responsible, which person is going to be responsible for putting that semantic model together. I think it's a combination of the, the format as well as the tooling that's going to, I, I think, keep that person more effective. But the problem that we find is most organizations simply don't, haven't allocated the right resources or the right responsibility or person to, to be doing that activity. And, and I think um, I think there needs to be a little more um, education for organizations to realize why they need to be allocating someone to deal with semantics and not just the data sources, you know, the database, the data where, or whatever, you know? Yeah, is, is that, was that your question? Or yeah, yes, it is. Yeah, because when, when, when you're developing an application within an organization versus when you're trying to develop an application that anybody on the web needs to discover, this, uh, the problem of, of granularity and how you have expressed your represented your semantics comes I guess into the picture, and that probably would be a, a major area that people, developers would, uh, and designers would need to look into more heavily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Well, I think <coughs> you're on the right. 
How about, I'd like to hear, uh, and I know I don't want to squeeze the other uh, speakers too much, I should probably wrap up, but you know, from some data experts in taxonomy and, and ontology and semantic experts that have been that are on the phone here, what do you think? I mean, is this is this consistent with the way that you're thinking about uh, semantics in what you're doing, or is, there, is or you think to yourself, this stuff looks wrong, this thing not quite right about uh, some of the stuff I've been saying? I'd just be interested to hear uh, what some of you think. Can I ask a question before somebody else answers on the data model? Maybe sure. it be germane to the question that you just asked of the data modeler, uh, Clark. And I, I want to come at it from uh, DOD viewpoint. You did a very nice job in your presentation. The difference I would not take with it, but the difference I would put out there is when you talk in enterprise, as you did with the bank, that's, essential, that's a very small enterprise when you talk about Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, home secure, Homeland Security, all working in what buzzword net-centric environment. Right. He handles semantics at that level, and here's a very simple, very, very simple case. I've got an airplane flying that says tank, and somebody from an Army rep comes up on the line talking about a tank. Right. Uh, <laughs> is that a gas tank or is that a, a vehicle? Yeah. Exactly, right. And you have, you have a little namespace collision there. Right, you start having names. And when you start talking about the metadata for a service contract, how do you handle things that in that same discussion, those were people doing, let's say, AIM, where that was really a simulation model, what kind of metadata or what's the size of the service level contract that can be handled and all the metadata that describes those critical parts of a model tell you whether you want to build something that contains a fluid or build something that has armament and turrets on it. How do you right. handle those? Those are data model issues. Yeah, yes, they are. And, and obviously the, the, the problems get worse the more you try to share across organizational boundaries. It's like if you're only sharing within one division of the Army that's concerned with one particular thing, it's pretty easy to actually get some agreement because you're like, okay, I know what you're talking about. You know, this is the same terminology we're using. But the, but the more you try to span those organizational boundaries, the more the semantic, you know, name inclusion thing gets worse. So what we've, what we've seen some organizations do, uh, not just, there's obviously the UDEF stuff, which is, attempts to be specific to the point of numbers to refer to particular things rather than words, uh, from my understanding. Um, and, and also there is, uh, there's the stuff that's going on in DFAS, which you're a finance and accounting service uh, has actually put together some, I think, some really nice deal with the information side of information sharing. Because um, I think they have a huge problem all the various groups to, you know, to handle their, their procurement for them. Um, but I think it looks like we're moving towards a federated model, not just for, um, you know, things like service contract information, but it looks like federation from a semantic model. What that means is that in order to that is outside of your particular domain, there has to be some sort of thing at that federation point, you know, between, you know, one system to the other system, and some manage sort of the domain-to-domain -domain, uh, semantics. And each time the organization, as you go to higher levels of domain groupings, you start to solve the semantic issues. That's what some folks are, look, are starting to do in larger organizations, is not try to solve it all in one master registry with one master mapping, but rather solve the problem as um, boundaries are being crossed 
if you will. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, thank, well, I, I'm sorry to, to, to cut you off, but we do have a, a bit of a time problem here. But I think okay. the notion of, of having federated uh, systems where the, the systems themselves publish their particular uh, uh, vocabularies and then, you know, you, you do it by by division, which is probably a start, but I think that you then have to, the, the problem of how do you get all of these different uh, divisional uh, lists of terms together in a place where you can choose the one you need. So it's something that we're all going to be working with. Sounds uh, good. Sounds like the next one call. <laughs> it does, yeah. yeah. And for those, this is Wayne. For those of you who want to contact Ron, uh, zapsync.com, they're analysts specializing in SOA, and they have tons of information on their website and ways you can get in touch with Ron. Yeah, Go ahead, Ron. Happy to take, yeah, happy to take I, your fan or hate mail. That's yeah, I, I'm actually going to, since we're, we're well into it already, I'm going to dispense with doing the overall introduction and uh, let you look at my slides later. They do pick... Uh, put together three particular questions, one each for referring to the uh, areas that our individual speakers are looking at. But I'd like to move on to um, Ken Lasky's uh, uh, briefing now, if we could. Ken, are you there? Yes, I am. Ken Lasky is a consultant, or uh, not a consultant, but uh, uh, with MITRE Corporation, works uh, with the SOA uh, reference model uh, technical Committee in Oasis. My slides today uh, don't say MITRE Corporation on them because uh, MITRE has a public release uh, process and uh, I put these slides together very quickly before I went on vacation and didn't have a chance to get public release so I've just identified myself here um, as one of the editors of the SOA reference model. Uh, the slides here is, is I can call it as a poor man's animation in that I just did copying uh, duplicating slides from one to the next and then added things as I needed them. So it's easier to uh, view and easier to print out. So um, Rex, as I say click, go to the, the, you know, click and go to the next slide. Okay? Okay. That'll be Peter that'll do that. But he'll okay, do Peter. Uh, so the topic here is ontologies and SOA isn't discovery a wonderful thing. Click. That means change slide. Peter? Okay. So we... Uh, invariably, when you're talking about SOA, um, there's always uh, discussion of discovering your thing. Click. So, for instance, we have the famous uh, published fine bind uh, discovery triangle. Uh, click. Um, but when you're discovering things, it isn't just as easy as saying, well, I'm going to create a query to look for something. It's how do you actually go about looking for something. So the first question is, if I'm not doing, you know, if I'm just doing a, a, a string-based search, I give a string, we see whether that string appears. But if I'm doing something, trying to search something that's been described using, you know, something where metadata has been created, the first question is, what properties are being used to describe the thing I'm looking for? What, what were those metadata properties? In XML, what are the tags? And then the second question is, well, fine, once I know what the properties um, are that something's been described with, tell me something about the target values that are associated with those properties. Now, if it's numerical property, fine, we're just doing numbers, but if it is um, a word, a term, uh, what are the terms that are being associated with that property that make sense for me to search? Click. 
Um, we address this a bit in um, the SOA reference model. Well, we first talked about the idea that typing things aren't uh, enough in order to give that, uh, to, to convey semantics. So the example that we give in the reference model is that a city name and a street name as part of an address are probably some string type, but just saying that you're a string type doesn't distinguish between what a city is versus what a, uh, a street is. Um, and so you need additional information uh, besides just saying what the structure is. Click. Okay, so the semantics of the property have to be clear. Uh, is it a street? Is it a city that, as me doing the description that I'm providing, or is you doing the searching that you're using to do a search? Click. Also, we get to the, to the next point. It, once we agree on what the property is, then we get to, uh, again, what the value is. And the example that we give in the reference model is we've agreed that uh, we're talking about a city, and we might even agree that the city is San Francisco. Uh, but how is San Francisco being represented? And we have a number of different ways that San Francisco can be represented. Um, possibly representing uh, all, either alternatives in vocabulary or different vocabularies. Click. So not only am I looking for the property of city, but I have to be able to consistently interpret the value that's given to that property. Click. Ken, can you just call out the slide number you're on, please, just so that uh, we know? OK. Um, let me we are now on slide number nine. We're on slide nine. Um, another example would be um, I am using the color vocabulary, and my color vocabulary is just the basic colors of red, green, blue, yellow, orange, purple. Next slide. So you and I are interacting. We agree on the vocabulary where the property is color. Have some, some consistency of that. Next slide. Um, but you're searching for a shirt and a nice moth. Well, next slide. Um, you're never going to find anything, even though we agreed on what the property is, because my property value vocabulary isn't consistent with what yours is. Next slide. So what do we need in the distributed world of, here I have SOARM, but just in general of SOA? Next slide. Um, well, one is we need a clearly defined indication of the vocabulary that you're using and from where the properties originate. Next slide. You need to clearly uh, indicate the vocabulary from which your property values originate. Next slide. And eventually, you need clearly defined mechanisms for mediating between clearly defined vocabulary. Next slide. Since we're talking about ontologies, well, my question is, if you're not going to use ontologies for this, then what are you going to use? Thank you, Ken. I think that this is actually uh, a very good answer, and one of the reasons why I cut Ron a little bit short was because I knew this was coming up. In, uh, in regard to the, uh, the last question that was asked of him, because we need to have the um, published, managed, controlled vocabularies that are available that we can go to to find these things. But more than that, Rex, I'd also say that one of the things, if I was building software for you, 
and I showed you the code, and I had one huge main routine. Um, if you know anything about software engineering, you would throw me out and say, this is completely unacceptable. Why don't you have modular code? But somebody you know, can come to me with a 60-page schema um, and say, well, I have a 40-page schema, and we're going to coordinate and, and mediate across these. Um, if we're building code in a modular fashion, why aren't we building our vocabularies in a modular fashion? So, for instance, if you're using a person's name and I'm using a person's name, irrespective of everything else that's going to go around it, we should either be using the same schema, the same ontology for the person name, or if we're doing it at that level, it is probably easier to mediate between a short, a, a small ontology that you're using for a person's name and a small one that I'm using. And once we get that in place, then anybody who's using those ontologies has some level of semantic interoperability. If we're using ontologies, if somebody comes up with a third variation and maps to mine, we should then be able to infer what the mapping is to yours or a large portion of it without explicitly getting into the n squared problem. And the more information, the more of these variations that are cataloged and the more information we have about how they relate, the more we can infer automatically without having to do explicit mapping. Absolutely. Have you worked with the global justice data model by any chance? No, I, I have some familiarity with it. No, well, it's an excellent example of what you just said. And the, the, where they want to go to, is, especially uh, in the direction of Neem, is actually trying to come up with more. Um, but I, I'm really, I'm always amazed that there is so little discussion of building our vocabularies in a modular fashion and then mediating between those modules. This is uh, Doug Clark again. Just a curiosity question. Or when you're talking mediation, has, has there been very much consideration in this field of intelligent agents mediation between vocabularies once in, once in fact you've established vocabularies and putting a little intelligence into those mediators try to go out and find the pieces that come together under the relationships of the ontologies? I think that we haven't really done enough work looking at, uh, at mediation um, uh, would one of our people from uh, SRI like to take that question? If you're still here. David Mock. Um, sorry. Hi, I'm here, yeah. <laughs> sorry, I'm having a little trouble with my mute button. Okay. Well. Could you identify yeah. yourself, please? Yeah, sorry, this is David Martin from SRI. Um. Well, I could just give a very general agreement with what I think Ken said, that uh, it's certainly it's, there's, there's a need for a lot more work on mediation. It's a very hard problem if you try to do it in a general, all-encompassing way. And certainly we need better tools, and we need better, need better theory underlying those tools. And as to whether you call a mediator an agent-oriented type of an approach or not, I don't, I don't think it... I don't think it matters that much as to as to whether you call it an agent or not. But the point is that we need more smarts in those kind of uh, in, in mediation components. I think you also need to look at when we're talking about mediation across uh, or among vocabularies. Also think of this as a way of dealing with versioning. Um, big problem when we're talking about validating, for instance, XML schemas. 
if we can come up with a robust mediation mechanism between vocabularies, then applying that across versions of vocabularies should be much simpler. Um, and so we, uh, to a certain extent, would have a leg up on dealing with the problem of conversions between legacy in one vocabulary versus legacy in the next version or, or, or a later version of it. Um, one of the reasons why I was asking for someone from SRI is that we in the Ondelog community had the good fortune of being able to go and visit them <clears throat> last week during the protege conference. And I was specifically uh, looking for um, perhaps some feedback on whether uh, there might be the possibility of developing a uh, semantic agent, an agent that goes out and, and chooses or has the algorithms to choose between and amongst uh, different vocabularies. Hmm. Um, well, sure, that's possible. I don't think we've done any work precisely in that direction, but um, that does sound like a good possibility. So you're talking about, you're imagining when you're starting to define your ontology for a new uh, domain that you would turn this agent loose and it would roam around the web and and find existing ontologies that might be useful for you? Yes. And this is so, you know, even if you had something a bit more limited, I mean, that, if you can do that, that would be you know, great. But if you think in the realm often from, let's say, an NCES, um, a net centricity perspective, a lot of emphasis is put on communities of interest, the COI to create and manage vocabularies. Um, but you still have the question of how you're, one, how you're going to interact across vocabularies of institutional COIs. Uh, but I look at it as the big challenge being expedient COIs. An emergency comes up, you collect a bunch of people, a bunch of expertise from different domains that may not have interacted before, and what you need is a robust mediation capability that you can bring to bear, that you can put in limited amount of information in and get these people up and talking. You don't have the luxury of being able to say that you've done the coordination ahead of time. You're responding to an emergency. How do we start building mediation capabilities that recognize that you need that level of flexibility? Um, and to a certain extent, um, mediation, the, the capability um, under those circumstances is sort of the, the analogous to um, when the web was coming up and people would start creating web pages. And every web page added value. It wasn't that you had a um, really a, a, somebody had a, a web page one day that was a critical mass and now you had the web. It was as you saw you needed things, as things got, as things got added, you had new resources which you can bring to bear to unexpected problems. And this is where the real power came in. And I think when we refer to mediation, when we're thinking about what we need as far as mediation, we've got to have these kind of scenarios in mind. Yeah, I would strongly agree with that. This is David again. So I don't think we actually need to solve the general mediation problem in all of its logical glory to, to have some really useful things going on. But we just need to start, and we just need to, con to realize that that is something that needs to be considered. We can build it. Um, every bit that we build of it makes it that much more powerful. I, I, I think you're reading my mind because that's what I'm trying to do with a web registry for emergency management and health informatics. 
And Ken, thank you very much. And we're actually on schedule. If we could get Rebecca to pick up here. And thank you very much, Ken. And for those of you who want to contact Ken, uh, he's uh, uh, a scientist at uh, MITRE Corporation, MITRE in the Virginia area. Rebecca? Yes. Hello? Hi. You're on. Oh, fantastic. Sorry. Uh, I have a little bit of feedback here, so I'm, I'm uh, on, on my line, so I apologize. If you, just, if you could just remember to say advanced slide or next slide, please. Certainly. Maybe so, slide number if you can. Okay. So uh, my uh, uh, the presentation that, that I put together uh, takes it, it, uh, a little bit of a different uh, tact than what, what Ken has uh, talk, spoken about so far. And I think that that was one of the very interesting things about today is, is that semantics and the notion of ontologies and taxonomies touch so many different parts of you know, a, an architecture that is service-oriented and a project that is attempting to define and plan and provision services. So the area that, that I'm going to focus on a bit today is uh, SOAS semantics and security. If you could move to the slide listed num uh, number one, please. And in the um, SOA reference model, um, you know, we, we, we talk about things in terms of the dynamics of services and about services. And, and in that, um, we have a discussion on an information model. And in, in essence, when you start looking at you know, the, the interactions that, that occur within a SOA, there are really f five things that, you know, key things that need to be answered. Uh, yeah, as Ken was mentioning, um, questions about discovery, location, and uh, you know, un un understanding what you can ask for and, ha and how to ask it. Um, when, in, when an interaction or an information exchange though, uh, crosses ownership boundaries, you know, ensuring consistent interpretation of information for discovery is, is important. Uh, but, but it's also important for understanding how do you, how do you secure those exchanges when, when they need to be secured. So in, in this, on this first slide, those five questions, there's, there's two areas that I, I really want to call out and look at a little bit more in detail on the remaining slides. The first is in number three, it's describing how to connect uh, between a, a service consumer and a service provider. And then in number four is how do you exchange messages in some sort of common messaging format. So if we can move to slide two. Uh, the title is Reference Models, Architecture, Specifications, and Standards uh, Realize so, so Interactions Only in Part. Semantics are also vital. So, you know, we think about semantics and metadata and taxonomies as they apply to the discovery of services, as, as Ken uh, spent some time talking about earlier. And, and those are all, you know, challenges that we have addressed in our, in our daily lives almost without thinking of. And, and being able to apply that knowledge uh, in the technology sphere as, as all of us practitioners are learning is, is a bit more challenging than, than figuring out how to translate, for example, from, from English to Italian in, in, uh, in the spoken word. Uh, but nonetheless, there, there's still a need and a capability at the you know, interaction or the human level and also at the technology level. And you know, focusing on those needs and capabilities are what the SOA reference model uh, considers uh, basic uh, to the, the whole notion of service-oriented architecture. And uh, this particular slide, uh, when, you, when you see this sort of uh, publish, find, bind uh, diagram on the left-hand side, there's, there's three almost categories of, you know, considerations. 
you know, steps one through three on, on this slide are, are really looking at what sorts of services will fit my need. That's where a lot of the discussions uh, that, that Ken brought into play come, come to bear. Steps number four, five, and six, which are colored in orange, uh, really focus on, you know, the interaction with a service. And they're oftentimes, you know, driven by the uh, service description and the policies and contracts that are there. Steps number seven and eight uh, focus on, you know, interpretation of the result of that interaction. And uh, for those of you who, who uh, are so inclined, if you look at the uh, service-oriented architecture reference model that many of us have worked on, it'd be a, I would challenge you to take those three categories and map them into the concepts within this OA reference model. Uh, all of that said, uh, if you start to look in particular at slide uh, at um, step number four, you know, we'll see that the, uh, the consumer, it, it's not enough to just understand, you know, how do I interact with a service, but you also sometimes will have to help a consumer know how to package security uh, information within a, a service request. In step number five, intermediaries uh, may be responsible for the manipulation of messages, you know, for example, an XML firewall. And in step number six, the receipt and processing of a message at a service provider, you know, often has, uh, occurs in accordance with access control and other policies. And so, therefore, even though semantics are most often thought of um, in terms of understanding messages and functions, uh, if you move to slide three, please, uh, the, the remaining slides are, are really trying to call out some considerations and, and food for thought that semantics are, are necessary to properly secure services also. So all of these considerations and, and the architecture and design issues around services, you know, indicate that, that semantics are, are necessary. Uh, you know, I want to go back for a moment uh, to uh, ZapThink. Uh, they put out at, at one point in time, and I know that they've kept it updated, a, a roadmap to service orientation. And it was, it's really interesting, if, you, if you're familiar with that roadmap, to, to notice sort of the curve that of, of maturity that, service-oriented projects uh, sort of uh, that were predicted to follow. And the first step was experimentation with web services, getting just some practical experience with what it means to build a service. The very next challenge that they talk about is talking about, you know, cons you know security considerations. How do you secure the things that are out there? And in fact, that's you know, why these, these challenges also need to apply to security because it is such a primary concern. And when you start talking about information exchanges, particularly in, for example, the DOD space or in the Intel space, it, it becomes a, a much larger concern uh, than when you're dealing only within the boundaries of a single organization. There's, there are things uh, like privacy concerns as well when dealing with different you know, countries that have different laws that need to be applied to, to transactions. All of these things imply that you need to have a common and shared understanding of the information that's exchanged. And the metadata that's exchanged, which is expressing things like security constraints, access control policy, and, uh, you know, other sorts of service information. So as, as Ron and Ken were talking, one of the things that, that I started thinking about is, you know, this, this notion of a progression. We start with a client server, uh, and then if we go to the World Wide Web, and then single sign-on, and then, you know, service-oriented architecture, and, you know, federated services, and then to, to grid services, which I've worked with in, in my past as well. Now, all, all of these sorts of paradigms have interwoven into it this, this notion of security and securing exchanges across boundaries. You know, it might be an application boundary or a system boundary, but as we get 
closer to the, to the SOA world, it's, we start talking about crossing organizational boundaries or administrative boundaries instead. And shared semantics become more and more important because you need to be able to do things like locate trust, you know, information sources and also understand how to trust them. Uh, you, you need to, if you're talking about access control policies, you need to comprehend like, the attributes or the roles or the identifiers that you use to evaluate and to enforce access control policies. Or even something like, how do you represent a service identity so that it, an access control policy can be expressed a, a, around that service? So all of these things are pointing to you know, why we need to consider uh, not just security and semantics and discovery as separate aspects of service-oriented architecture, but where the touch points are. So the, the last two slides I'm, I'm going to talk about I'm, are a little bit about some authorization models that can be applied to SOA. And I'm going to talk about something called an attribute-based access control approach and, and, and talk through where this becomes important in a SOA and why uh, semantics play into it. And at things like attribute taxonomies and service taxonomies, what role do they play in you know, securing services as well? You move to slide four. Again, you know, semantics and security are key pieces to successful interactions across organizational boundaries. This uh, diagram here you know, shows at a, at a logical level the fact that a service consumer you know, really just wants to interact with a service provider. Service consumer has a need, service provider has a capability. But there are several players and several steps that happen to actually implement that exchange. Things like XML firewalls, things like you know, traditional network firewalls, signed messages, service infrastructure, policy enforcement points. And all of this does not necessarily need to be uniform across an or, you know, two different organizations that are looking to partner. And, and that's one of the challenges, is that a SOA security solution has to augment the traditional security solutions that are out there. And you, you can't rip out or, or presume that uh, an organization, let's say Organization A on the right-hand side, is going to rip out their existing security infrastructure and start from scratch just to interact with Organization B. You know, nor are they going to want to reduce their internal security to encourage cross-boundary interaction. Third, which is where something like attribute-based access control comes into play, um, and in particular a lot of the grid research that's happening, is, is that you can't rely on pre-provisioning an account at each service provider for every potential service consumer. Um, typically, an, an account, let's say, is, is almost an, an, a representation of all of the in, in local terminology, let's say, of all of the requirements to access a resource. So, for example, things like what groups are you in? What roles do you play functionally? What sorts of sign-offs or documents need to, needed to be signed and, and presented to a system administrator before he would actually create the account on that machine? All of those are typically a part of the uh, account provisioning process. And if you, if you think about the, the notion of an unanticipated consumer, really run contrary to supporting an unanticipated consumer. But all of those requirements need to be commonly understood between two, organi you know, between two organizational partners uh, in order for that transaction to, to occur. And that's where semantics, taxonomies, and agreement on you know, even metadata come into play. So if you go down to slide number five, um, I, I put together, there's 
four different authorization models. And, and really, slide number four they shows a diagram of, of a single interaction. Mark Wine. I'm sorry? This is Mark Wine joining the call. Hi, Mark. We are on slide number five of the SOA Semantics and Security presentation, if you're following along um, offline. The, in slide number four, as I was saying, the diagram shows an interaction between a service consumer and a service provider. To secure that interaction, you have your traditional security mechanisms that are complemented by SOA security mechanisms. Another layer of complexity that needs to be thought about is the notion of, of what authorization model is happening. We have uh, two, two major ones represented on slide five. One I've called inline authorization, and the other is pre-authorization. If you think about inline authorization, it's very much the, uh, the model that you'll see where there's an interceptor there, for example. Um, you know, a consumer sends that request. There's an XML firewall that will intercept that request and call out to some you know, trusted uh, decision authority to say, you know, should I allow this request to go through? Or should I reject it and send back a soap fault or just, or just drop it? Another also very real uh, authorization model, though, is, is a pre-authorization model. And in, um, you know, think about it much like when you go to see a movie. You go to buy a movie ticket, and then you hand the ticket to the usher to be uh, permitted access into the movie theater. So that ticket serves almost as your authorization token, much like a consumer uh, could request an authorization token to use a uh, particular service. A pre-authorization model uh, would help in a, in a scenario where a consumer might want to repeatedly call a service, you know, multiple times in quick succession. So think about it from performance perspective. And each of these different, each of these different models has implications for the types of taxonomies and, and semantic agreement that need to happen between the consumer and the service provider. So things like what policy needs to apply to a service request? How do I represent the service within that policy? You know, what attributes can I forward along with the request? If you have privacy considerations you need to make, or certain non-releasable attributes, you need to make sure that you, know, you have a way of representing that. Um, how should you express the, uh, you know, the, uh, the action that, that you want to, to execute? You know, certainly update in, in one domain or in one realm might mean something very different or, or something that's dependent upon the resource that's being updated. Uh, and finally, you know, what does an attribute mean? This goes back to the, the, the discussion about tanks as well. Are we talking about, you know, a, a gas tank or a, or a munitions tank? Those same sorts of, of discussions also apply to attributes that would be used in a authorization model. And that's, you know, again, independently of who's collecting the attributes and, and how are they being passed. All of those, though, have implications for the taxonomies, metadata, and semantics. Thank you, Rebecca. That was terrific. Questions? Definitely. Uh, this is Mark Wine from CSA and Solutions. I have a question. You mentioned authentication uh, processes and models. Um, can you relate any ex exemplary experiences uh, in the semantic interoperability arena that employs certain or specific um, Types of authentication software or service. 
Well, so in, in the slides I actually, um, and I apologize if I, if I misspoke and used the word authentication, I, I was speaking about authorization as opposed to authentication. Um, and I, I've, I've purposely stayed agnostic to particular products um, in, in terms of, you know, how to, how to make them interoperate because some of these uh, questions and considerations are applicable independently or irrespective of the, of the product and should be uh, independent and irrespective of the product base and infrastructure that's in place. The question uh, is a good example of the problem in uh, uh, identifying common terms and defin definition for different end users. Uh, um, how, how do you use the term uh, there? I'm talking about policy, uh, and I think that perhaps one of the, the keys to policy is that you would have an, an at a policy enforcement point, you're going to be you're going to need to have. Uh, some references, and the references may be on may be found by an ontology of policies, or they may be pre-authorized. I mean, is that correct, um, Rebecca? Uh, those are certainly two. two yeah, those are certainly two viable options. Who gets who gets to in that model? Actually, who gets to authorize those sets of ontology? In in so. Ultimately, the authorization decision or the, or the authorization or any policy that is enforced uh, is, auth is authorized and is determined by the organization itself. And, and that's one of the challenges that, that we're talking about here is the translation from the, the business or the mission um, plane, let's say, to the, to the tech technological representation. And that's something that oftentimes we, we almost, and, and I even do it, you know, as a technologist, I forget that, you know, technology is an enabler and, and really that we can't say, oh, it's this piece of software that does it. It's really a, this piece of software that enables it, and it's the organizational responsibility to do it. Well, this is Dwayne, Rebecca, and one of the things that's really important that we've learned, too, at Adobe is that it's not just a matter of making the decision point, but also being able to audit the reasons the decision were made or the intent behind it from a legal perspective. So if I accept a purchase order from you and it gets past that decision point and I put a digital signature on it, along with the digital signature, there needs to be a audit, uh, auditable uh, track that can show that I also made a statement to the effect of I intended to abide by the terms and conditions of this per invoice or purchase order at the time that I signed it. I think that's a really good point, and, and certainly the, the discussion here um, was, was not intended to say that this is the only area that you need to think about in terms of security or in terms of ontologies, but this is one place where they, where they do actually touch each other. Now, auditing and, 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 and logging are, are other areas that, that, that definitely need attention, uh, and I, I certainly the, I, I did not intend to say that we can ignore them uh, given this particular type of authorization model. This is Ken Lasky. Sorry to interrupt right here. Uh, we had uh, taken a break from our uh, uh, SOA reference architecture face-to-face -face meeting, and I'm going to have to drop off now in order to get back to that meeting. So I thank you for the opportunity of talking, and if anybody has questions for me, they could reach me by email at K-L-A-S-K-E-Y 
at MITRE, M-I-T-R-E dot org. Thank you very much, Ken. I, I think we have the same situation for all of our speakers. So, um, because I, I know Rebecca is going to rejoin another meeting, and, I, and uh, Ron may have already left the, for other appointments. So we're we're going to be having our discussion between and amongst ourselves. But I I, I sincerely believe that with the uh, uh, participants we have in in today's call, that we should be able to uh, have an excellent discussion. Oops, sorry, I'm off, I'm off mute again. Yeah, unfortunately, I do have to uh, rejoin my other meeting. But uh, again, on the slides that, that were posted, my contact information is on there. If you have other questions, I always uh, uh, in, encourage and welcome a, a good dialogue on, on all sorts of considerations related to SOA. And uh, I look forward to, to speaking with all of you again in the future. And thank you for this opportunity as well. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. Okay, uh, this is Lane. Uh, Rex, you're still on, correct? Yes. Okay. At this point in the conversation, uh, the, the forum can be opened up to questions or comments uh, other than directed at uh, just Rebecca. So, uh, you know, anyone who's got some experience to share or would like to uh, just pose a question out to the community uh, based on what we've seen or perhaps uh, extending what we've just seen, uh, now is a good time to do it. And please introduce yourself first before you pose the question. Hi, this is uh, Kevin Cabral from um, the Western Empire Administration I'm with DOE. I was curious about the pre-authorization diagram, and I'm wondering if that is um, an implementation of like a PKI coming in and um, an X500 compliant um, LDAP instance, so that you know as as this request comes in with this type of key. I go down my tree and figure out, oh, okay, you are this, and you're authorized to use these types of services. This is Martin. Martin I'd like to add a comment on uh, to the question for your answer. Um, it, sound, it seems to me, and please, if you could comment in answer to that question, uh, does what's been just proposed in the question suggest an integrating factor um, from system to system or some common architecture for processing authentication. This is Dwayne, and uh, I'd like to first offer this. Uh, Rebecca had to drop off, but if any of the Booz Allen Hamilton uh, colleagues who are on the phone uh, feel they want to answer the question on Rebecca's behalf um, because they have knowledge of this, I would like to invite them first, and if not, I'd offer a perspective on it. Okay, well, I'll take a crack at it. Um, you know, so for the, the, what Rebecca's shown is patterns, and I know Booz Allen's been very active in the area of establishing architectural patterns for a lot of their clients. Um, wh one of the good things about patterns is, of course, they can be implemented using multiple technologies, and certainly the LDAP with the X500 uh, search for pre-authorization uh, could certainly provide the aspect of identity assurance that you would need to actually pass somebody into a service uh, invoking environment okay. uh, directly because you recognize them. But you could also use other things. One of the things that's being uh, worked on in standards, which I'm also participating on in the vein of SLA, is the web services uh, secure exchange. 
And one of the things that is being determined is when you have these pre-authorizations and their item potent, meaning each request coming in is treated as unique and individual, and then the authorization happens, it doesn't scale very well. And what will happen is that um, both the parties, the consumer and the provider, will actually set up a secure exchange and have one token once they've been authenticated the first time and use that same token to recognize each other. And there's security uh, safeguards put in place in WSFX for things like, um, you know, reuse attacks or replay attacks okay. um, using the, the nonce uh, protocol. Uh, to mitigate the the factors that somebody may try to you know simply copy and replay something and send it to a different IP address. Yes. And there's certainly a time limits placed on the validity of something and also um, you know state management at both ends to to help uh, avoid this kind of replay attack. So there's a multitude of standards that are being looked at for this right now. The Web Services Secure Exchange is probably one of the better ones, and that one's being driven largely by the, uh, the vendor community right now, but I expect we'll be seeing uh, WSSX really carry on from where WS Security left off. And WS Security provided an excellent set of uh, uh, tools, um, and it's not limited to just LDAP or Active Directory for lookup for authentication. Uh, you, you can use multiple types of tickets, Kerberos tickets, uh, and other tokens within the WS security uh, standard. Okay. But it, it comes down to, for this pattern that Rebecca's shown us, is really applying it in the context of the, uh, you know, who has the ability or who has set up the environment and what they need out of it. It would most likely be highly specialized for that. And I hope I did justice to the question, or at least explained it in somewhat clear terms. <laughs> No, that, that makes sense. Okay. I, this is Rex. I think that pre-authorization is one of the advantages of using a web services registry, and one of the disadvantages is that it can be more open than you want it to be, more yeah, more easily uh, attacked, if you will. So it's, it's probably a good idea to, to investigate the newer strategies that are coming along. Okay. One of, one of the things about the uh, the secure exchange is, you know, it, it definitely has the ability to protect long short running and long running uh, conversations. Which, when you get into using SOA as a layer to enable business process, you may actually have a longer running business process. And when the, the business process exceeds the, you know, normal kind of simple request response mechanisms to one thing when you're doing like ACID type transactions or a two-phase commit to a web service, uh, you would want to have some sort of uh, token to actually control or declare the more finely grained aspects of the exchange. So you'd be able to declare that, hi, I want to set up an exchange and there's only going to be three types of messages allowed in this exchange and at the worst case, they're going to take eight hours from this time to complete all of them. Um, the best case is that they'll be done in the next three minutes. So that you can actually put some uh, parameters around it that allows the receiving and sending side to actually reclaim resources. For instance, if it goes past eight hours, the receiving side can ascertain that this whole thing has failed and release the resources and uh, drop the token from its um, uh, persistent memory source so that it can't be reused. And if the uh, if the consumer wants to then reinitiate it, they'd have to reinitiate it. 
Right. Okay. Uh, and just just another word. I'm in the Web Services for Remote Portlets Technical Committee, and we're working on we're working through the public comments for uh, version two, and we added a um, an ability to uh, change the state of an exchange asynchronously. It's not quite AJAX yet, but it, it will allow that to happen and, and happen using uh, a web services security framework, at least a user token. We, going farther than that for a complex protocol is a little bit difficult. How do we get web services in the context of SOA, this is Mark Wine, uh, are not inherently service-oriented? How do we... Uh, move design-wise and practice operational-wise from what we know today as web services to SOA environment? Well, it depends on your definition of SOA. So the, there's a group of people who uh, are on this call who have actually worked on uh, within the standards body OASIS and defined a high-level reference model that defines service-oriented architecture as a paradigm for organizing distributed uh, capabilities under different ownership domains so that they can be used and, and consumed, uh, which is independent of any specific technology. And most of us view web services as probably the family of technologies that are most likely to be used for implementing the patterns of SOA uh, today. Um, so in the, in the context of that question, um, you know, the, the discussion on web services arising from a, a conference call on SOA would be relevant because it's probably the most common. I think that the, the previous question was, you know, what standards and protocols do you do to implement that pattern that Rebecca showed? Um, if, your, if your definition of service-oriented architecture is different, of course, then that uh, blows the, the question wider open. So I'm uh, not sure if that answers your question or not. I, I could maybe add. Uh, the reference uh, to it's semantics, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not exactly. Actually, I mean, on 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 this session page for today, uh, there is a, a few paragraphs on background. Actually, we had Dwayne uh, on an invited talk uh, about SOA reference model. Uh, we had a previous discussion session on enabling SOA implementation with integrated process technology and framework uh, in which actually uh, George Brown from Intel uh, talked about uh, manufacturing pattern ontology for the extended service enterprise uh, in, and that proposal has been elevated to the International IMS Research Consortium uh, in the project is being proposed from the U.S. Secretariat uh, at, at NIST, uh, and of course Frank McCabe, uh, who is with us today, also uh, represented us in a uh, seminar at SRI just a, couple, a week or two ago, uh, giving the sort of latest on the SOA RM, the reference model uh, architecture. So this is a whole range of resources right on the page that we're looking at today. Yeah, and you, you'll find that it's, um, I, I believe the, the question came from somebody at IBM. It's the SOA reference model for service-oriented architecture at Oasis is very, very similar and uh, in construct to the IBM big red book of SOA patterns. 
Um, a lot of the, I mean, it's the same philosophy that IBM took with respect to that work, which was let's try and define SOA as an architectural paradigm rather than as a solid set of technologies. And uh, you'll probably find that the works are very, very similar. Of course, this is a great question for the subject of today's topic if we can't agree on the semantics of SOA itself. <laughs> uh, this is Doug Clark. Can I ask a somewhat of a philosophical question? Please. Um, is most folks out there who envision a service, they envision it as a black box. Uh, we, we talked some of the technical issues of ontologies and semantics, etc., but it's very seldom talk about how, I, how do I know what's inside that box and does it really satisfy my requirement? Or, or should you know what's inside that box? Should you have to know? And how, well, what's the mechanism for doing that if I assume that services can be sitting there in a registry and no matter whether I use a web service or not, how I get to that registry, what's the mechanism for knowing if it's a level of detail, whether in my case, dealing a lot with physics-based models, whether that model really is the equations that I think it ought to be, or do we just sort of believe? How is, how is the well, publication going? That's, that was precisely the topic of Ron Schmelzer's uh, introductory talk this morning, which was, you know, we, we need to have the constructs that can first of all classify the services as to what they do and then also offer all the semantics about what's going on in that service when you call it. Now, you shouldn't have to necessarily know how Okay. It is being fulfilled, but you have to know, uh, I guess the, the concept's called manage transparency. There's certain things you do have to know, like if you send a purchase order to it and you get an acknowledgement back, you have to know that that implies to you that the service owner or the, the uh, person the service is acting as a proxy on behalf of has somehow accepted and okayed your uh, purchase order. And those semantics have to be able to be relayed to the consumers or even the potential consumer community because the potential consumer community has to be able to inspect those things that declare those uh, aspects and the, the uh, methods that are going to be going on inside that service and understand from those whether or not that service is suitable for them. Uh, one other fine point, too, is that um, the services aren't really inside the registry repository. The services would most likely exist elsewhere but be referenced from a registry repository, uh, which acts more like a C pointer. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I said that wrong. Yes, I realize Yeah, no, no worries. I just wanted to clarify that. That, that's, that brings up an excellent point, which is that registries in and of themselves are can only be as good as the information that can be put that can be put in them and at, at, at the current time you know we have EBXML and EDDI and they're both fine they have you know good points and points that they do better than the other one and having them combined is probably a good idea which is something I happen to be doing but what I'm also doing is I'm working on developing extra resources that are specifically semantically related that can uh, offer both to the uh, the individual companies that will be listed uh, some extra ability to put in information that's only available to potential consumers if that consumer asks the right question. And so in, in a sense, you would be able to get more information if you needed it or if you wanted it. But, uh, you know, it's like the... the 
the registry and WSDL is just like the first step. And if you need to go further, you may have to take it out of band and 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 do individual contracts to, to make sure that. You, in fact, in your case, you would have to. Um, I'd like to just to summarize it because I think we're out of time now, uh, Rex and Peter. Um, I think one of the things that we identified is that we're probably still at the infancy in the whole uh, semantics, ontologies, and taxonomy work within SOA and uh, its implementation, such as web services. And I think that that echoes all the, the points that a lot of the, uh, the speakers seem to raise more questions about. This is an issue um, more than they were saying, here's how we solve the issue today. Um, it was a great session. Oh, we Thank actually you. have... Uh, like half an hour. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I apologize. I've, I've yeah. misread the clock. Sorry? Oh, yeah. I, I actually have to drop off myself uh, at noon. I have, uh, I'm have. i in this mandatory meeting at Adobe, and uh, I, I was able to wrestle away for the hour and a half. Um, Good meeting, Dwayne. Thank you. Thanks, Dwayne. Uh, taking over? Yes. Okay, are you cool with that, Rex? I'm fine. Okay, and thanks very much. This is, uh, I'm going to definitely uh, log in later and listen to the last half hour. This has been great. Thanks, Tony. Thank you all. So the floor, the floor remains open, and we will do our best. Maybe, Rex, you want to go through your slides and uh, frame the focus, the few okay. questions that we might want to discuss. Okay, if you'd like to do that, Peter. Um, Mark, can I ask a couple more questions? Then? Sure, please, go ahead. Uh, I, again, some of these are just curiosity because I come from a different part of a different industry. In the commercial side, uh, what are the major impediments going forward with SOA? Or is everybody really scrambling to do it? And how open, is, even though SOA, if you read all the literature, says how open it is because of the loose coupling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, how much is it really constrained within constrained enterprises rather than being open? Uh, can you can we get you to perhaps hold that question until after I've finished my uh, original introduction? Okay. Uh, because it, it actually pulled. I had the advantage of uh, of doing my introduction after having looked at the speakers' presentations. So I can give you a little bit of background on those very topics as I go through this. Okay. So, uh, in, in turn, if we can go ahead and go on to slide two, Peter. Um, the the key areas that uh, our, our speakers addressed are. Uh, the business motivations and challenges, which is very much what um, what the last uh, question was about, in terms of the payoffs. And uh, Ron did an, what I thought was an excellent job of highlighting some of the difficulties that uh, we're facing at this stage uh, in the infancy of you know developing service-oriented architectures as a uh, a viable methodology. And uh, if you look at the role that ontology can play in in those in those areas, <coughs> uh, I think that being able to ask the right question uh, is oftentimes going to be the the answer to 
interoperability and whether or not uh, the the range of services that you're actually capable of consuming will be available to you. And um, I can't exactly ask you to go back to Ron's um, uh, to Ron's last slide, but and I <clears throat> I can go over it in in a sense that he, this particular example had several. Um, folders inside of a larger folder and within each of the folders was a, a circle that's a um, service domain so you have these service domain you know, groups and then individual service domains and if you have an ontology that can get you uh, the correct information for another company's core transactions or uh, quality transactions or rules or their user interface services or, their, or a data analysis, if you can find a way to speak the same language without having to have the same you know, equipment and software, then that's the key to making the reuse happen um, because then it doesn't really <clears throat> it doesn't really matter what platform you're on or what hardware you have. So that was one of, one of what I thought were the key essences from the commercial side of the of the story. And then in Ken's presentation, what he was basically uh, giving us was the the rationale for why it is that we need ontologies and taxonomies. Because if you don't have the right language, if you don't speak the same language, or if you don't speak the same controlled vocabulary you're not going to be able to get a mob shirt if if you don't have the, the, the means with which to do it, if you don't have the values for the properties correct. So you have to have not not simply the, the same terms, but you have to have the correct set of values for those terms or for the, the data models. Um, and with the last one, with Rebecca's, we've got a... Um, an excellent example of why it is that we have in security a need for having the ability to select policies. And in this particular case, you know, there was a bit of a, uh, a mismatch between understanding what uh, pre-authorized or a, a pre-registered, if you're using a registry, uh, versus an inline authorization is. And that's going to be an increasingly important sort of factor in service-oriented architecture because we have no guarantees that we're going to be speaking the same languages if we get a certain level of um, uh, you know, a certain level of, of sort of, I wouldn't call it madness, but if you get a mad rush to the, to the market with a bunch of different kinds of ways that people say that you can uh, create and implement service-oriented architectures. If you don't understand the principles and you've got a policy from a, a service bus or an enterprise service bus and you've got an enterprise architecture on another company and, and another set of tools in a, in, in a government agency that don't match up precisely, the whole notion of a service-oriented architecture will fall apart in a pretty big hurry. So we need to have you know, ontologies to be able to sort out these various things and to get published and you know verified lists for 
you know, of employees, for instance, if you're going to have access control and you need to be able to find ways to verify and authorize things between two companies so that they can't be spoofed by the replay that uh, that, that Dwayne mentioned earlier in, in, in a question related to security. So we have the security question also begging for more work from our community, from ontologies, to, to provide the translation of various different vocabularies to each other. And if you go to the next slide, uh, this is sort of the my, my catch-all um, example, because this is actually from uh, an existing um, a project, a pilot that, that models improving first response to a um, to a train wreck that happened in Granville, South Carolina in January 2005 that had a chlorine release and was a very um, sad you know, instance, a, a tragic instance where lack of technology at that time uh, allowed more fatalities and more damage to be done than, than would be today and uh, will even be better tomorrow because we're beginning to develop the sensors that will allow us to have that. But what you're seeing here is uh, a case where we need to be able to deliver the correct format for uh, warning systems depending on the particular system involved. So you need to have, a, in essence, an ontology of warning systems, whether it's a siren, a radio, uh, EAS, uh, or reverse 9-11 telephone. Um, you need, these, you need to get the correct format to those systems. And you also have to have a, the information within the system itself, within the alert, correct per the event type. So you need to have a consistent uh, ontology of event types. And those event types need to be published by the jurisdictions so that you're using the correct version of an event type, say, uh, chemical, biological, radiological for the place where it happens as well as for the federal government. So there may, there may be differences in those particular <coughs> terminologies that you have to account for. So you know, those are places where in emergency management you need to have ontologies. And that was basically the set of presentations we had today. If we go to the last slide, uh, I suggested that we might want to frame our questions uh, along those lines, such as how can ontologies help normal business processes happen better and faster? How can organizations work with controlled vocabularies? And how can governmental agencies or other uh, organizations with high-priority security needs uh, ensure that messages are sent to the correct persons at the correct or the correct authority level at other agencies or with their business partners. So if we if we ask questions along those lines, we we've, we've got people here who are involved in all of these areas. So the fellow who had the question before I started, yes, could you repeat that? Hard to repeat. Uh, the, the bottom line of the question was. What, what are the major impediments to implementing SOA today in the commercial marketplace? What are, what are the, the real hurdles that uh, folks are putting up? I'm not, I don't mean it technically. I mean organizationally or culturally. What are they putting up as impediments to going this path? 
and are most of the services that we're talking about still within the what I would call restricted enterprises? All banking holds their services internally. They're not out there uh, that are available. I'll go back <coughs> to uh, a pointer in a registry going out to get services. Are we talking about something that's really strictly within my own enterprise or something that I can find somewhere I can find somewhere and bring it in? And how much is industry really jumping on this? Now, before answering, I, I want to go back to something. This is a little ego thing. In 19, in, 19, uh, in 2001, uh, I wrote a paper, and I called something uh, meaningful interoperability. And I'll substitute the word services for modeling and simulation. Here's what I said. There was a definition for interoperability, and then I added to it, the services understand the context of the problem being addressed, syntax and semantics of the data being provided, and ensure the level of detail and fidelity is consistent across the entire federation, which now you would call an enterprise, without the need to develop custom hardware, software, or tools. And I call that composability. And absolutely, and then it's still called service composition. And I, my, for myself, I'd say, in my experience, the reluctance of businesses to publish their information in a registry. Registries have not caught on. And uh, it may be that it's just difficult. It may be that there are reasons that I'm not aware of that are individual to the companies involved. But the reluctance to do that is probably the major single biggest hurdle to being able to do that because before you can get to the point of using the service you have to you have to discover it identify what you know how it delivers the service and whether or not you're compatible and then there may be other negotiations that you need to be able to find out about how they do that so uh, it, it's not something that you can just sort of uh, immediately jump into and I think that probably the in terms of the marketplace, it, the marketplace tends to want to, people want to go to market with a s complete solution. And you can't have a complete solution when we only are in our infancy with this. I 100% agree with you on that part. But I, I would invite other people to respond to this because I'm sure I barely touched the surface. Maybe we're the only two. I doubt it. Thank you. Thank you for answering, answering, and I unfortunately have to ring off also. I think this has been a very informative discussion. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Uh, this is uh, Jim Disbro. Hi, Jim. And uh, are we the only ones left? Uh, we could be. This is I, Bob Smith. You're not. We are. <laughs> no, I, I, I was just trying to get other people to, to jump in. Go ahead, Ken. Oh, I, I don't have any questions. I'm, I'm just listening. I, um, I'm, I'm sort of on the, a learning curve trying to figure out how, how all these things fit together. Well, I'm going to go ahead and ask the, 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 the center question. How can organizations work with controlled vocabularies? And I'm hoping that maybe someone out there can, if, if you are in any way, shape, or form working with a controlled vocabulary, please let us know how you're doing it. Well, I'm actually trying to build a controlled vocabulary, um, but I don't know how successful it's going to be because, uh, yeah. What area is it in? What domain? Um, 
in the um, semantic interoperability committee practice, they have a, a, a wiki set up that I, I'm building an energy community inside of. I'm working on the energy community. Mm -hmm. And uh, where energy is viewed as a, a unifying concept. And so, you know, everything that we touch has some energy component to it. And how do you organize the information that goes on about all these things in some kind of structure? Is that energy in terms of calories expended, or is that energy in terms of infrastructure for delivering oil and uh, or wind or water? Um, it, it would be the latter, and it would be moving in that direction. It isn't there yet. Uh huh. Um, yeah, it's it's sort of. How do you how do you build the structure in which all this can work? Because it's um, you know how do you how do you move towards having a critical mass that's sufficient to carry the the uh, level of information that you're needing to to carry uh, in terms of the the vocabulary in terms of the semantics mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I, I'm I'm seeing you know little. Uh, glimmers of, of uh, critical mass that's being achieved in certain areas, but it's still not to the point where you're, I could respond yes to the, the questions you asked. Yeah, uh, it's still you know, yeah, moving in that direction, though. Well, I work in the emergency management field a lot, and uh, in fact, I'll be spending most of my afternoon in doing exactly that, uh, working on resource messaging. And uh, the reason why I was Specifically asking about controlled vocabularies is that you know one of the one of the, the the chief worries or concerns that we have in emergency management is that we're, we're having a, a difficult problem. The the, the the problem of jurisdictions is that we have states, local jurisdictions, and federal jurisdictions, and international jurisdictions. Not only just different languages, but also you have. Uh, different ways in which and, and different levels at which they implement their technology and so you you have a whole raft of choices about how you're going to name something uh, whether it's you know a person's name or uh, an address which Ken was talking about and uh, it's incredibly non-trivial especially in geospatial terms because you have to you know I, I don't know whether you're aware of the, the sort of train wreck of different geospatial coordinate systems that, that people can get themselves tied into. Yeah, I've heard. Uh, but, uh, you, you know, basically what we ended up doing was saying, look, we can't, we can't do a one-size-fits-all here. We have to do, and we have to put it, we have to put the responsibility on the communities, on the jurisdictions, to publish their vocabularies. We'll be happy to use them, but that way, when you want to speak to them, you can speak their language. You can have their data model, have their, their you know, what coordinate system they use for longitude, latitude, et cetera, and you can speak their language in terms of how they name their resources because it's shipping resources back and forth that we're dealing with right now, and we, and we, we have to do this thing about asking people to, to, you know, basically build a list, publish it, and get a namespace for it so we can refer to it, and that's a big hurdle right now which is why I was asking the questions, like, you know, where's, where there has to be a key to motivating these jurisdictions to do this. And I hope it isn't another 9-11 that's going to be required before people will be willing to do, do what seems to us to be perfectly commonsensical. 
So, yeah, I had a conversation with a lady who works for Spotsbury County as uh, she's pretty high up in the building inspector ranks. And in Virginia, being a commonwealth, we do not follow federal laws, state laws. We follow county laws on all the things that deal with buildings. And their vocabulary has to be their own vocabulary. Right. And and, and when you've got 3,000 counties, each of whom may be doing something similar, you've got lots of different dialects. Yep. And yep. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know... Uh, I haven't. I, I, yes, it's an issue. I, I don't know if there is an answer. Well, I, I'm sure that eventually there is. I'm hoping, I'm just, like I said, I'm hoping it's not another 9/11 or another, you know, Katrina before you get enough motivations for people to understand that. You know, you have your, you already have your own system. And one of the, the good things about uh, an agent that you can, an intelligent agent that you can send out to gather information, you can send it out and get, have it gather their their vocabulary. You know, they may not even have it published. It, it may just be, you know, something that has to be discovered. Yeah. Do we have anybody else who would like to jump in? Rex, this is Brand. I'll chime in. Okay. Uh, I encountered something uh, interesting in this regard in the last uh, two weeks. I was asked to participate in a NetReady sensor workshop, which involved uh, several of the people that have worked on the pilot you just described. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that workshop, I was pleased to hear that they have a data model for what they call CBRN, chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear. And uh, I uh, just created a wiki page for them, and they're going to post that. But uh, it suggested to me that they had the foresight a couple years ago to define a domain, namely CBRN, mm-hmm. Working on a data model, and uh, and now they are using that data model to help in harmonizing the multiple standards that I'm sure you're aware exist in this area. Yep. And the data, so uh, you might want to look at this. In fact, we I just helped them post the minutes from the two-day workshop because they want to use the wiki to not only correct the minutes but to try to standardize their terminology that about 15 or so different presenters working on this uh, in this area uh, used. Uh, so they're not only trying to standardize their terminology across across the presentations that were made, but also they're working for several years now on trying to do a, a data model and a standard vocabulary and then have that interact with the standards. Uh, right. That, that, that will be an example of exactly what we're looking for. And, in fact, uh, I, I have a pretty good idea that, that I know whom you're talking about. And, in fact, I, I need to get in touch with you next week after I get this week's batch of stuff done uh, about the semantic wiki work and getting our, our, our wikis um, more easily uh, indexable. I have posted a link to this under What's New at the Colab Wiki uh, homepage. Okay. This morning. Look at, we don't have all the presentations linked in, but we have all the the, the, uh, the minutes there. Yeah. And uh, shortly we'll have the link to the data model uh, where everybody can look at that. 
That would be terrific. I, I, I really wish that, that we hadn't picked a day that every single one of our presenters had to rush off to another meeting because I'm, I'm sure we would have had much long, much more interaction here today. But, uh, you know, we still had a very uh, excellent uh, set of presentations. They're very well-focused. Um, you know, I learned a lot this today. Yeah, I commend you all for doing that. Thank you. So on on that note, uh, <laughs> let's thank uh, Rex for putting this all together. Uh, we thank the panelists for starting the conversation, and we thank everyone for joining us today. This Indeed, thank you very much. August tenth, two thousand and six, ontolog discussion on uh, ontologies and service-oriented architecture. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye. Bye.